May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Okay, um, I'd like to start with reading that collect again. So this is the second Sunday of Advent, the collect for, for Advent 2. If you haven't found it um, in your prayer book, it is on page 92. Page 92. We prayed this. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scripture to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this collect is my favorite collect in all of the prayer book, hands down. Um, And it's newer than most of our Sunday collects. In fact, it was composed by Archbishop Cranmer for the first Book of Common Prayer. So it's only about 500 or so years, or 450 years old, whereas most of the rest of the collects are closer to 1,000 or 1,500 years old. Uh, So it's still old, but just not quite as old. (laughs) And uh, because of this collect, the second Sunday in Advent has often been called Bible Sunday among Anglicans, and among other liturgical traditions who have borrowed this collect from us. I believe some of the Lutherans have done it, for example. But it speaks to our reformers' desire to to see the, the reading of Scripture restored to a central part of the public life of the church. And not just reading of Scripture, but reading large chunks of Scripture, the whole Bible, or at least as much of it as possible. In fact, Archbishop Cramer makes clear in his preface to the first book of Common Prayer that this restoration was the main point of the prayer book back in 1549. The main point was to provide a vehicle for the English church to hear the word of God read and preached through that course of daily morning and evening prayer, in addition, of course, to getting the sacraments and everything else in the people's language. So as Christians, we are supposed to be people of the book, people who know our Bible. And that's because the Holy Spirit speaks to us through God's word. Now, of course, widespread literacy is relatively new to, uh, to, to, to humanity, period, um, and certainly to, to us as Christians. So we often think of this in terms of that private reading, that private Bible study. But that would not have been the case That's why, um, in previous generations. That's why Archbishop Cranmer wanted it every day to be offered in the church, because there's a bunch of people that couldn't read it themselves. <laughs> That's why a lot of the church fathers did the same. The reason why we have so many homilies from Augustine and Chrysostom is because every day they were in the church reading and preaching the scriptures to their people, for example. In previous Bible Sundays, I have um, uh, talked about this infographic that I I ran across a few years back um, that showed how long each book of the Bible required to be read through. And I'm not going to get into details on that, but other than just to kind of summarize, this is the too long didn't read version. Uh, which basically says that there's not a single book in the Bible with the possible exception of Psalms that takes longer to read than it takes to watch a major summer blockbuster in the theater. Not one of them. 
And that's supposed to be encouraging. I mean, that's not supposed to be guilt-inducing. It's supposed to be encouragement. You can do this. Or alternatively, if you, uh, if you take the longer, the longer view on this, um, if you read three chapters of the Bible a day, you will get through most of the Bible in a year. You'll get through the entire thing in just over a year. If you're doing the Psalms every day like we do in our tradition, you'll get through it in less than a year. Um, are we, we have just re- returned to the Anglican Church in North America as our province, and the daily office lectionary that the ACNA has put out um, for use in morning and evening prayer, it really does cover more of the Bible than any other prayer book ever did throughout the course of the year. That's what I'm going to be using this year uh, for my own, my own uh, morning and evening prayer. If you'd like to join me on that, I will be making printouts available um, so you don't have to uh, juggle two prayer books. The point of all that is that we should be encouraged. We can do this. Now, it's true that the Bible contains some very difficult to understand things. That's why a lot of people don't um, read more of it, because it can be hard. I remember going to a men's Bible study at the church where I was ordained, and one of the guys said, you know, I look at this, and it's just words on a page. I don't understand a thing. Well, our reformers have given us some excellent advice for tackling the scripture. In the first book of homilies, the fruitful exhortation to the reading and knowledge of Holy Scripture, it advises us to drink the tender milk if we cannot yet handle the strong meat of Scripture. So in other words, if you're having it, finding it too difficult, start with the easy stuff and work up to the harder stuff. It also advises us that the best way to combat our ignorance of Scripture is simply by reading it more. The more you read it, the more you're going to know and the more you're going to internalize it. And furthermore, we are advised to approach the scriptures with the right heart. In the homily, it says this. Read it humbly with a meek and lowly heart to the intent that you may glorify God and not yourself with the knowledge of it. And read it not without daily praying to God that he would direct your reading to good effect. And take upon you to expound it no further than you can plainly understand it. Don't try to explain the stuff that you don't understand. For as St. Augustine said, the knowledge of Holy Scripture is a great, large, and high palace, but the door is very low, so that the high and arrogant man cannot run in, but he must stoop low and humble himself that should enter into it. So if we keep these things in mind, we will indeed be greatly edified when we read our Bibles. Um, incidentally, kind of, a, kind of a little bit of a rabbit trail here, um, the uh, Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem is designed that same way. You have to stoop down to enter into it because they want everybody to come in humbly. Uh, so uh, yeah, that, that doorway is like maybe this, hall, this tall. <laughs> the word all in the address of the collect, remember we said, blessed Lord who has caused all scripture to be written for our learning. That's a very important word. It's very intentional. As Christians, all of the Bible is essential to us. All scripture is for our edification. We don't treat the Bible as a collection of sound bites or quotes. We've all seen the coffee mug that has a part of Ephesians, uh, or, I'm sorry, Philippians 4 on it. Um, I can do all things through God who strengthens me. That's true, but that's not the whole story. That's not even the whole verse. <laughs> I mean, St. <laughs> Paul is not saying, grab your cup of coffee and you can do it. That's not what he's saying. <laughs> But that's how we often treat it, right? That's, that's how we often treat it. 
No, we are, we are to, to, to have all of, our, all of the scripture for our edification. We don't treat it as sound bites. We are to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the scriptures in their entirety. And that's because scripture is the word of God written. Scripture is God's special revelation to us as his people. The, the Bible does not merely contain God's word. The Bible is God's word. As St. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 through 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Now, you're probably familiar with that verse. It's pretty common. I, I think I inscribed the uh, address of it on the inside of my, um, my college class ring, if I remember right. And some of you may have been told and reminded that uh, when uh, St. Paul was writing this, the all scripture that he would have had in his mind was what we would call the Old Testament. After all, the New Testament hadn't been completed yet. They were still working on it. It certainly hadn't been collected for the church yet. This reminds us of what we see in our epistle today. Whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. The Old Testament is indeed just as important as the New. Now, sometimes as Christians, we can forget the importance of the Old Testament, even if we're not intentionally forgetting it. We can kind of diminish it sometimes. You know, for example, in our, our traditional readings of Holy Communion, they're generally just drawn from the epistles and the Gospels. Um, we have only a few passages from the Old Testament, Acts or Revelation, chosen for the epistle each year. Plus, there is the fact that we call it the Old Testament. Doesn't old imply some form of obsolescence? Why read an Old Testament when we've got a new one that's shorter and generally easier to understand? Well, we need to acknowledge a few things. First, we should acknowledge that our own liturgical tradition has us reading two passages out of the Old Testament in addition to a large chunk of the Psalms every single day in morning and evening prayer. If we do count the Psalms in those readings, we ought to be getting about twice as much of the Old Testament every day that we do of the New. And that makes sense. There is about twice as much Old Testament as there is New. And then secondly... At our parish, here at All Saints, we of all people should realize that old does not imply inferiority. At All Saints, we use the old prayer book, right? We read from a very old translation of the Bible. <laughs> Many of us have a good amount of gray or white in our hair, assuming we still have hair to begin with. And a significant part of our parish vision is to pass on those old and lasting truths and customs to the next generation. We are intentionally preserving something that we have received. I don't mind my children learning those new VBS songs, but I hope that the ancient hymns of the church is what becomes their heart's soundtrack. And really, I mean, let's look at, the, at all of us. If we know a single Advent hymn, what was the only Advent hymn we know? O come, O come, Emmanuel. The Latin text of that hymn is 1,200 years old. The tune that we sing it to is about 600 years old. And the English translation, well, that's only 160 years old. But isn't it still one of our favorites? We're going to be singing it at the end of the service, and I've probably sung it about a dozen times in the last two weeks. 
we know that older is not inferior. So what of the Old Testament itself? Hasn't the New Testament replaced it? Well, let's remember what our Lord said himself on the subject in the Sermon on the Mount. This is what, the, what our Lord said in Matthew 5, verses 17 through 19. He said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And that also kind of reminds us of that last verse in our gospel today where he said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Now, the Greek word translated as fulfill in the Sermon on the Mount here, it speaks of making something full, full fill. When we read the Old Testament, there is indeed a sense of something that's not quite finished. The story is incomplete. There is something there that needs to be filled up. The glass is a bit half empty. The early 20th century evangelical Anglican minister, W.H. Griffith Thomas, um, who, who incidentally helped found Dallas Theological Seminary, of all things, um, he invites us in one of his books on studying the Bible to imagine a stranger with an Old Testament only. That's his phrase. And he writes this. Soon he comes to Genesis 3 with its promise of someone coming. He reads on and finds a repetition with amplification in chapters 11, 17, 22, and 49. Still he reads and finds traces of the same promise in almost every book until as he reads from Isaiah onwards, the very fullness of prophecy appears. But he comes to Malachi 4, and the promises have not been realized. Griffith Thomas goes on to describe the Old Testament as a book of unfinished prophecies, a book of unexplained ceremonies, and a book of unsatisfied longings. But as we read the New Testament, we see how Jesus does fill up these unfulfilled expectations. Griffith Thomas writes, Jesus the prophet in his life, or fulfills in his life the prophecies. Jesus the priest explains in his death the ceremonies. And Jesus the king satisfies in his resurrection the longings. Both the Old and New Testaments are ultimately about Jesus. The Old looks forward to him, and the New looks back on him. I was recently in a very foolish Twitter conversation, and that just means a Twitter conversation. Um, <laughs> I was recently <laughs> criticized for using the term Old Testament rather than Hebrew Bible with the accusation that we have taken Jewish things and turned them into Christian things, that we're somehow culturally appropriating the, the, uh, the Hebrew Bible when we call it the Old Testament. But isn't this simply what Jesus and his apostles, the promised Messiah and his very Jewish followers did for us? Isn't that what Jesus said about the scripture and about himself. In John 5.39, for example, our Lord is talking to the Pharisees about the witness of the Old Testament. And he says, search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. 
And then in Luke 24, when he's speaking to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, our Lord tells them that the prophets spoke about his suffering and his resurrection, all the things that had just happened. And in verse 27, we read, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Because what we see is that the Old Testament is the foundation for the New Testament. Without the Old Testament, we simply do not have a frame of reference to fully understand the New Testament. Yes, you build the foundation first. If you don't, the building's going to fall down. We have some construction going on next door. What would happen if there's no foundation, right? Article 7 of our 39 Articles of Religion puts it this way. It says, The Old Testament is not contrary to the New For both in the Old and New Testament, everlasting life is offered to mankind by Christ, who is the only mediator between God and man, being God and man. Wherefore, they are not to be heard, which feign that the old fathers did look only for transitory promises. In other words, God did not change his mind. The coming of Christ is not plan B for salvation. The patriarchs and matriarchs of the Old Testament We're looking for the same salvation and in the same way that we are. They looked to the same ultimate covenant in which we participate and and we're part of that same covenant. Now, we certainly have more information about this covenant than they did, just like Isaiah had more information than Moses because God revealed his word in uh, in stages and, and over time. And with the coming of the Messiah, we recognize that our relationship to uh, certain aspects of the Old Testament law has changed. But again, Article 7 is going to help us out here. We read, although the law given from God by Moses as touching ceremonies and rites do not, mind, do not bind Christian men, nor the civil precepts thereof ought of necessity to be received in any commonwealth, Yet notwithstanding, no Christian man whatsoever is free from the obedience of the commandments which are called moral. Now we certainly see that Christian worship alludes to Old Testament worship in many ways. Our our chancel um, looks a lot like the uh, basic structure what the tabernacle would have. But we no longer worship in the Temple of Solomon and the Levitical tabernacle We don't use its specific sacrificial system. We do not observe the Levitical purity codes. Those things teach us about Jesus and what we do is informed by them, but we're not doing the same thing they were doing. Not really. And the Old Testament civil law is going to give us principles and kind of a case law, but we don't need to just copy and paste from the Old Testament into our Constitution of the United States. That's not the way civil law works. It informs it, but we're not copying and pasting. Nevertheless, we are all bound to keep the moral precepts of God's law. And that's why we regularly recite the Ten Commandments and the summary of the law at Holy Communion. They're the foundation of the moral law. And as we've discussed in our adult Sunday school, the Decalogue and our Lord's summary of the law have historically been seen as the foundation for universal natural law as well. That's all fine, but what does that have to do with Advent? This is Advent 2. Why was this collect written for the second Sunday in Advent? I read one historic commentary on the 28th Book of Common Prayer where the author said that today's collect has, uh, quote, has little to do with the primary themes of Advent. 
I would, however, respectfully disagree with this commentator. Just look at some of those later verses of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. This is our verse 3 in our, in our hymnal. O come, O come, thou Lord of might, who to thy tribes on Sinai's height in ancient times didst give the law in cloud and majesty and awe. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Other verses call the Lord Jesus the key of David and the rod of Jesse. Very, very specific Old Testament prophetic illusions. The first verse prays for our Lord to ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here. A primary theme of Advent is entering into the expectation of the Old Testament saints. The expectation of God's people, Israel, with the longing for the coming of the promised Messiah. We partake of Israel's ancient longing for God to fulfill his promises and to keep his word. And to do so, we then must look deeply into whatsoever things were written aforetime. Advent is that annual reminder that the Old Testament scriptures are our scriptures too. It's a reminder that we have been grafted into the, into, the, into the tree of Israel, that we've been adopted as part of Israel's commonwealth. It's a reminder to take up and read our entire Bible because all the scriptures are about Jesus. And as we enter into the anticipation of our Messiah's first coming, we similarly anticipate his second coming. Because Bible Sunday is our Advent reminder that God keeps his promises. It's a reminder that God's word shall not return void, but shall accomplish that which God pleases. Um, and that's from our uh, Old Testament lesson morning prayer today. Our hope of everlasting life is spelled out in all of God's word. So may we hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest all that God tells us in all of the Holy Scriptures. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.